things he pers- there I am. Woo. That's that's like ringing in my. Yeah, we'll pull that back a little bit, and I'll take a swig. Now we'll have all the distractions out of the way before. Uh, Thank you, Judah. Okay. All right, we good to go now? I'm looking forward to it. Let's study it. As they heard these things, verse 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. They said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. A fascinating story. Uh, Lee and I had a momentous event this week. We've now been married 25 years, and thank you for all that have reached out to us and said something uh, to us. But it also marks our, we've been now in full-time gospel ministry for 25 years. And I am so thankful that in God's sovereignty, this is the passage that's going to kick off, hopefully, another 25 years of full-time ministry, um, because it kind of is recalibrating me personally for the rest of my life, right? I'm I'm like fully middle-aged now. I hate to admit that. I know I don't look that. You're all gasping, but, but like, when I think of 25 years passing, you know, everybody gone, right? And now I think of another 25 years, potentially, Lord willing, I mean, anything could happen in God's sovereign plan, but potentially another 25 years, I don't know that I would pick another passage that I would want for myself, personally, for the church that I'm pastoring, for friends that I care about and love so much. It's such a profound and powerful study. I hope it will be that today. I know we only have 35 minutes to look at it, and I've been enjoying it all week. And I hope that it sinks in and convicts all of us. There's no doubt to the divine nature of this book. When it's studied and it just kind of the truth just pours out of it as you, as you look at it over and over. And we could come back to it in six months and have more to say about it. But it's a privilege to minister this story. The parable of the pounds. That's what it's called in the King James. The parable of the pounds. It's called in, the, in our translation the parable of the minas. There's a lot of historical background and significance to this. 
Um, I started out early on Monday, I pulled out a book I have by Spurgeon uh, when he preached this passage, and he starts the story saying that he did not know the, that the, he did not understand this parable truly. Think about this Spurgeon saying this. I did not understand the parable truly until I went to a very proficient expositor of God's word. Think about Spurgeon saying that. I went, Spurgeon says, to a prominent expositor of the word, and he told me the historical significance of this passage, which was the key to unlocking all of it. And then during the course of the rest of the week, every single resource I looked at pointed to that same historical story. Every single one. So we don't even know that prominent expositor's name, but he's going to unveil the truth. There's a historical significance, a historical event that Jesus uses from, we could say, the news to relate this story of the nobleman who goes on a trip. When Jesus was born, the king of Judea was Herod the Great. This is the guy who slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem uh, at Jesus' birth. Herod the Great died at, in 4 B.C. Of course, we know Jesus is not born in zero. That's not how it worked. But he, he died in 4 B.C. Jesus uh, was, uh, was an infant at that time. And the king of Judea only ruled subordinately to Caesar in Rome. Like, if Caesar wanted to, to get rid of him, he'd get rid of him. In fact, one of the quotes I read said, Caesar made and unmade kings at his pleasure. Make no mistake, Caesar is the god of the world at this time. And Herod is subordinate to him. Herod's desire, when he died, was to have his son Antipas be on the throne. But at the very last minute, Antipas is the guy who ended up killing John the Baptist. He's, the, he's that Herod. But, but at the very end of his life, he changed his mind. He changed his mind. He changed his, it says, testament in the story. Uh, I have this old, old book, Josephus, History of the Jews. I rarely look at it, but I read about 10 pages out of it after I read Spurgeon's remark, and he records this whole story. So I'm just paraphrasing it to you. <laughs> so he says, and in his testament, Herod the Great changed it to Archelaus, his other son, Archelaus and Antipas. Remember, this is the Herod that killed his sons while they were swimming in a pool. This guy is just a... But at the last minute, he changed it. So Archelaus is to be the new king of Judea. In fact, Herod the Great wrote a letter to his soldiers and said, thank you for your fidelity. It was read after his death to the soldiers. Thank you for your fidelity to me. I wish that you would express that same fidelity to Archelaus. Herod the Great dies. Archelaus sits on the golden throne but refuses to be called king yet because he wanted to seek Caesar's sanction. Meanwhile, Antipas is angry. Archelaus is going to make a journey to Rome to appeal to Caesar to say, let me be the king. So he goes away. He's going to Rome to seek out the kingship, at least have Caesar's approval. But Antipas and his mother and some other members of the family go first and, according to Josephus, says, I am honester and fitter to be the king of Judea, Antipas says. He's got his mother. This is, this is like crazy politics. Could you imagine CNN if this was going on? And, uh, and they, besides that, Archelaus had already slaughtered 3,000 people at a Passover result, revolt. And so besides Antipas and his mother, the Jews sent a 50-person delegation to Rome as well to complain about Archelaus. And they were saying anything but. 
anything but Archelaus. They said, even if we have to be absorbed by Syria, please, we do not want Archelaus. We do not, think about the historical ramifications to this parable, we do not want that man to reign over us. Caesar's in a quandary. He, remember, he's going to make the decision. He decides to make Archelaus an ethnarch. I know that's a strange name. It means just a, he would just have a portion of the throne. It ended up being about half of what Herod possessed. And he, was going to, he said to Archelaus, you will rule for a time, and if you can prove yourself virtuous, then I will grant you the entire kingdom after that. Prove your worth reign well, and you will receive more. Archelaus returned as king and had punishment to dole out for those 50 that rebelled against him. He deposed the high priest. He he rewarded those who were loyal to him. Now, eventually, Archelaus, just shortly after this, was ended up banished to Gaul for his tyranny. He did not prove to be a faithful leader. But it is that... It is that story, that historical story that Spurgeon said is the key to understanding this. Now, I just read this story. Doesn't it sound super similar to the news story of Archelaus? A guy has to go away to a foreign land to receive a kingdom, and when he comes back, he's going to hold those servants accountable and punish people who were revolting against him. Can you see the... I mean, this happened 30 years ago in... in, Jesus tells this story. This is only 30 years ago that this story of Archelaus happened. This is going to be so fresh in their minds, they are totally going to make the connection. And and I think as we go through, you'll see that too. It's just a super text. So rather than call it the parable of the pounds, I would rather call it the parable of the pause. Parable of the pause. I'm going to explain why, because I think the reason for Jesus' giving this parable is our key to understanding it. Look right away in verse number 11. He gave this parable for two reasons, because they were close to Jerusalem and because his followers thought the kingdom of God was supposed to appear immediately. The word appear is a fascinating word. It's used in Acts when they're sailing and they said Cyprus appeared. Like they're sailing and this is what the the followers of Jesus thought. They thought the kingdom was going to appear and it was going to appear right now. Jesus is going to correct those false assumptions by the giving of this parable. The disciples were confused and did not understand that Jesus' earthly career would take place in two very distinct stages with a pause in the middle. That's why I'm calling this the parable of the pause, because Jesus is explaining to them that the kingdom is not coming now, it's coming later. In fact, if we think about it this way, we think we've talked about the kingdom before, but because you say, well, Jesus came and John the Baptist came saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So, and we've talked about this before, so let me just quickly review. Yes, the kingdom of God was there in a spiritual sense, right? Now is the opportunity for you to join that kingdom through faith and repentance and submission to that king. You can enter that kingdom where Jesus the king will become the ruler of your hearts, And that is made possible through his death and resurrection. But then he's going to go away. And now we have this pause. And we're living in the pause right now. We're still in the pause. Okay? And and then the physical kingdom will actually come later when Jesus returns to earth and sets up a physical kingdom where he will rule and some of us will rule too. Faithful ones over cities, the passage tells us. But the disciples thought this was supposed to come 
here. They, they didn't understand there was going to be a long pause. Y'all follow that? In fact, in Acts 1 verse 6, they're still messed up. Remember? Jesus on the Mount of Olives giving them some final words, you shall be my witnesses. But Lord, isn't this now? Is now, now finally the time? Right? Was that 40 days the pause <laughs> between resurrection and ascension? Or is there a lot? He goes, no, even, even in other places, I don't even know in his human sense. I don't even know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows that. But there's going to be this long pause, and the parable is going to answer this question. This is key. What should we be doing in this pause time? Followers of Christ, what should we be doing during this interim moment? Fascinating. I mean, this is a fascinating study. Also, the mention of Jerusalem is key. Because when they're going to Jerusalem, remember in Luke 9, 51, I've shared this several times in the course of our study, he is setting his face to go to Jerusalem to die. Look back, might, might even be on your same page in your Bible, Luke 18, and maybe you have to turn one page back, 18, verse 31. Jesus is trying so hard to lead these, um, not ignorant, but, but, but um, confused followers to the understanding of what his ministry is. Verse 31 of 18, see, Jesus says, he's telling his 12 followers, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And, and if you're a disciple, what you're hearing is king time, king time. We're going to that city, he's going to be made the king, and the kingship is going to be set up. But Jesus says, no, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And it's talking about being delivered, being mocked, being shamefully treated, being spat upon, being flogged, being killed. See all in the passage, you're just looking at it with me, right? And finally, being resurrected. In 19, verse 10, at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. And hearing these things, it says in the very next verse, the disciples are thinking, great, we're going to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to be exalted and our lesson next Sunday is him going through the triumph, in the triumphal entry being praised and exalted as the son of David. Money, coins, palm branches, cloaks being spread in the road. Jesus riding the donkey, the prediction of Zechariah. Here is the king. And what Jesus is trying to make them understand is Jerusalem is not a place of coronation. It is a place of crucifixion. Okay? And after that, resurrection, pause. Then sometime in the future, and it is still future even to us, are you all with? I know this is all live background. Are you with or not? Okay, so in, sometime in the future, still future, he will come and there will be a coronation and every knee will do what? Just so you're with me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Okay, So the parable is really to explain to us, followers of Jesus, what should I be doing during this pause? What should I be doing while I'm waiting for that king to come back? Like Archelaus, gone. What should we be doing while he's gone? Jesus gone. What should we be doing? It's a parable about stewardship, responsibility, reward, and judgment. Let's start. There's so much to say. I maybe should have made this two weeks. I, ho I hope we can get through it. Let's start by looking at the, at the parable a little bit. The nobleman, okay? He said, therefore, a noble Men. That's a fantastic word. It's eugenis, eugenis or eugenis. It means well. E-U is well in the, um, in the Greek, like, like evangelism, well message or eulogy, well words. Eugenis means well race or well family. 
It means a, 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 a distinctive person, specifically of noble birth, descending from a good family or of high rank. The person in the parable who is end up going away to receive for himself the kingship is a person who is of noble character. I want to mention um, four things about the nobleman in the passage. So if you're writing down notes, I try to make it understandable. I want to talk about the attributes of the nobleman, the absence of the nobleman, the appearance of the nobleman, and then the admonition of the nobleman. Real, real quick, four quick things. That's not our whole message. Just quickly help you know where we're going. What are the attributes of this nobleman? Again, a nobleman is a person of great significance. Putting aside the fact that he is God in the flesh, Jesus himself belongs in a special class all his own as a nobleman. He is born of the seed of David. He is noble in character and in his compassion. He is high above all others. Two beautiful passages of Scripture exalt him. Colossians 1, 15 to 18. He is... He is the firstborn of creation. He is, he is to be preeminent in all things. He is the head of his body, the church. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of his person. Spurgeon said in that same uh, chapter I read on the other thing, that it would be difficult to find a second to the man Christ that is within any measurable distance of him. I mean, we're not even talking about him being God. We're just saying as a human being, Jesus himself blows away all other human beings. Now you add the God-man to it and his real character and worth, his virgin birth and his perfect life and all that, and that's like far beyond. And you would think a noble man like this would want nothing to do with anybody else, right? Where do they live today, these noble people? They live in gated communities with security. You don't get close to noble people like this. Yet, Christ in his nobleness is, in other words, our separation from him is not a matter of his unwillingness. It is a matter of our inability. Christ is not unwilling to fraternize with us. That should be a joyful theme for us, that this noble, high ranking character wishes to condescend to be with us, yet we are unable of ourselves to be close to him. His absence. He went, passage tells us, to a far country. This, of course, pictures Jesus' ascension into heaven. He goes to the Father as Archelaus went to Caesar to receive the kingdom. Remember what Philippians 2 says? He went, he ascended unto heaven where God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. The Father grants his approval to Christ. And there's a passage in the Old Testament, ask me for an inheritance and I will give you the nations. When in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man the eternal dominion. God himself, if we go back to our analogy, God himself as the Caesar or as the supreme emperor grants to Jesus the right to be the king and demands that everybody else who already quoted it bow their knee and confess with their tongue that he is Lord. He gives him a name above every other name. King of kings. Lord of lords. And in that absence, he receives that kingdom. Now we're waiting for his third appearance when he will come back and rightly take that throne. After this pause, 
he will, verse 12, end of verse 12, return. End of verse 13, until I come. This is a done deal, everybody. He's coming back. He will return. Okay? You watch the hurricane stuff this week. There's all this prognostication. Where will it go? And then there's all this nonsense about where it will hit. And not nonsense, but they're trying to discern and no one really knows. This is the certain fact of history that the son, the nobleman, is coming back. That should motivate every follower of Christ, right? What should I be doing now if he's coming back or since he's coming back? And then what is the admonition? What is the admonition? Before leaving, the nobleman calls his servants to himself and he gives them one mina apiece. It is a little confusing. If you look at verse 13, he says, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. Does that mean each servant got 10 minas? No, because when you look down later in the passage, uh, in verse 16, when the servants are giving an account, it says, your mina, right? So each one got one mina, and that's important for in just a minute. A mina was equivalent, equivalent to 100 drachma. A drachma is a day's wage, so this equals about three to four months' wages. And its instructions are to use that mina in business. Old King James used to say, occupy till I come. Here it says, engage in business. The word means to trade, merchandise, traffic, be invested with this mina. So the implication is, I'm going to go away. I've given you something to invest. And when I come back, there's going to be an accounting for how you handled that investment. And the nobleman goes away but he is going to come back. Now, this sounds really familiar, and I want to remind you of another parable in Matthew chapter 25. You don't have to turn there. That's called the parable of the talents. It's a completely different parable given in a completely different place. And a, a talent, actually a mina, is one-sixtieth of a talent. A talent is huge. Mina, very small. The talents in Matthew 25 uh, that parable is given on the Mount of Olives. This parable is given near Jericho on the way into Jerusalem. And the big difference is, in this parable, each person gets one mina. In that parable, the talents are different. One gets five, one gets three or two, and one gets one. They all get different talents. They're, that's important. So we ask ourselves this question as we study the passage together. What is the mina? What does the mina represent? If the nobleman represents Jesus, his servants obviously disciples or followers of Christ. Notice there's 10, not 12. This isn't, a, this isn't a command to only the 12 apostles. This is a command to everyone who would follow Jesus. And what is to be done with that mina? A talent in the other parable, again, different parables, seem to represent abilities or gifts, even to the point where talent has become an English word that, that means a, a skill or a gift that one has or an ability. Amina does not represent an ability because everyone gets one. Everyone gets one. I believe that the mina represents the gospel. That when the nobleman leaves, he entrusts to his followers the gospel. One of the reasons I read 1 Thessalonians 2 to you this morning is because Paul actually says that. He says, God has entrusted us with the gospel. It is also mentioned in 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 6, and 2 Timothy 2, that God has entrusted us with the gospel. 
The gospel, of course, is the news that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. That all of us who rightly admit our complete depravity before God and admit that there is no solution that resides within us or around us to fix that problem, and that sin has broken our fellowship with God, that we do not enter into this world right with God, we enter the world wrong with God, and we remain that way until we exercise faith and repentance. The gospel is the good news that there is a way to be right with God. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the ends of those ways are the ways of death. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who comes to the Father through him will be saved, and that is the only way to do so. You must believe that Jesus alone is sufficient, that Christ is sufficient. Nothing we've done can take that wrath away. We, we, must, we must faithfully put our lives into his hands and repent of our sins. And then when we do that, we are entrusted to invest that gospel while the king is gone, okay? to traffic in it. Our goal is to invest the gospel and to seek to multiply. Doesn't this make complete sense when you think of the Great Commission? All power is given unto me uh, in heaven and earth, so you should go therefore into all the world and the verb is make disciples. Reproduce yourself. Use the gospel and invest it to create more followers. We all have this same responsibility during this pause. It is not the job of the paid person. It is the job of all believers. Everyone gets the mina who becomes a believer. Everyone receives that gospel. So let us ask ourselves the question. I will make application again later. Am I putting the gospel to work? Am I making wise investments with the gospel? Am I engaging with the gospel? We must all be busy in gospel work. All servants of Christ must do this work. What gospel investments are you making? And I'm going to give you some examples in just a minute. You can see why this is the perfect message for me. Because like, i got 25 more years, I hope, Lord willing, to make some gospel investments. And to, and, and, but I, I might have one more day. Christ could return tomorrow. The kingdom could come. It is urgent that we understand this. Now, just in the middle of this, before the king comes back, there's a quick mention of these citizens, verse 14, who hate him. Just like Archelaus. It's, it's so close to that uh, historical story I gave you at the beginning. Citizens hated him. Why would anyone hate the nobleman? Why would anyone hate the noble-charactered Christ? What cause has he ever given anyone to hate him? Right? Does this not display to all of us the complete wickedness of human society that, that anyone could reject or resent or hate Christ? It, it's, it's stunning to me. Yet that's where I would be without the moving of the Spirit in my life. They wanted autonomy. They said, verse number 14, we do not want this man to reign over us. That is such a fantastic word, this man. It's the word Teuton. It means this one. They can't even bear to say his name. Think about him saying it this way. We do not want this one. It's said in disgust and hatred. We do not want this man to reign over us. Just like Archelaus, anything else. But primarily, they wanted themselves to be the ruler. So they send this delegation to the king to reject him. The citizens may represent the Jewish nation. 
According to John 1, verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But of course, it can be applied to any of us who reject his rule. And we can reject his rule either by aggression or by apathy. Some reject Jesus violently, uh, angrily, hatred. And others, and I would say the majority of people reject him by apathy. He just isn't even worthy of their thoughts. He, he's, he, he takes up too much time. We don't even, they, they make nothing of Jesus. We, in fact, know that to be true based on conversations we've had, even in our community and in our families. Verses 15 to 27, then, lay for us the, the end of the story when the king returns and what he brings with him. I wish we had more time. I'm going to have to be very quick. The main part of the passage is actually the account uh, the accountability that is requested to the nobleman when he returns and his interest in seeing which of the servants were faithful, what they did while he was gone. And again, this moment is certain. Everyone of us who calls ourselves believers is going to face this accounting. <laughs> that, that's, that's staggering. Okay? Now, I believe that this parable represents the judgment seat of Christ which is a judgment that all believers will face, according to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all, in that context it means believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. We will all be rewarded on the basis of our works, and the rewards will be granted based on our faithful efforts for the gospel. Note that there is no boasting in this judgment. Three of the servants are recorded here as having accountability. Of course, of the ten, they represent probably the ten. But the first one, when he approaches the king who has returned, notice that the king, and we're just kind of summarizing what is happening in verse 15. When he returns, he receives the kingdom and tells these servants it's time for that accounting. We've already gone over that. Verse 16, the first comes and says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Notice there is no boasting at that judgment seat. It is the work that the gospel did, not the work that he did. That's why he says, your mina. He doesn't say, I made. I made ten minas. It says, your mina has made ten minas more. The power for the fruit is actually in the gospel. It is the delivering and transforming power of the gospel. Let us also note that the reward is not based on giftedness or fruitfulness. It is based on faithfulness and investment. Okay? This is a glorious, glorious challenge to think of myself entrusted with the gospel as all of us are. What I'm doing now with the gospel will matter then. Who knows how my gospel ministry might end up bearing fruit. I'm thankful that that is totally up to God. Totally up to God. God receives the glory and credit and yet he chooses in his sovereignty to share it with us when those servants come back with a 1,000% increase or 500% increase, they are granted this overwhelming responsibility. You did great. You were faithful. Come rule 10 cities? Think of that. Does that sound proportionate to you? Amina is three months' wages. You basically 10 times did it, so you have 30 months' wages for me, and it's nice. I want you to reign over 10 cities in the future kingdom. There is a place for faithful servants to rule in Christ's kingdom. 
But you don't just get there like randomly, like God's like spinning this big raffle wheel and says, oh, Andy, it's your turn. No, all that will be decided based on what I am doing now. So, so if I want that, I better be busy now. I mean, that, that, that is such a, a convicting thing. Second Peter says, or First Peter that, that in that day, my faith might be found to praise, glory, and honor at the appearance of Jesus. The fact that Jesus would allow a slave to enjoy service in his kingdom is just kind of, kind of mind-blowing. It motivates me. So, what kind of gospel investments are we talking about? I, I came up with five, uh, and the, you should think about this. You should think about this. These are, these are things that you can be doing now, making investments with the gospel that will matter later. Okay? First of all, all of us can make praying investments. All of us can make praying investments, right? Who am I praying for regarding the gospel? Who, who am I, who am I uh, laboring with in prayer over the gospel? Folks, so much of our time is wasted that can be spent praying. We waste time sleeping. We waste time being entertained. We waste time uh, selfishly. We, 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 we can be praying constantly, laboring in prayer, um, Perhaps of the five, this might be my most neglected aspect of investing. All of us can do that. All of us can do that. In fact, all of us can do all of these things. There is no excuse. What excuse will work? I mean, when we get to the third servant in just a minute, and he starts making excuses, we all kind of feel bad for that guy. And, but some of us are probably actually in that category. We've got to be careful. I can make effort investments. In other words, I can, I can use my efforts and energy for the gospel. I can share. I can serve. I can talk. I can care. In other words, this is more of an action you know, I, I don't mean to say that the gospel investments are all about souls, as if this guy, you know, I have 10 souls behind me, I have five souls behind me, I have no souls behind me. I think it's the idea of the investment in the gospel. I can work, I can share, I can serve, I can talk, I can, I can be compassionate with others. Third, and this may not be true for everybody, but it's true for most of us, I also have, uh, I can make children or family investments. What am I pushing my children towards? Am I pushing them towards uh, protection and safety and prosperity, right? Get a good job, uh, live close to me, don't do anything risky for Christ. You know, we want to, the, the idea that, that, I mean, think about this. I, I think about this a lot. Like, okay, my minas are invested. I, I have myself. Now I also have investments that I've made in my family or even in others that those investments, it's not like this is a pyramid scheme, but in other words, those investments are actually going to be my investments too, because I've, I've poured into that, and I've, I've, I've desired for them to go out in gospel ministry. I can make time investments. Folks, what fills your calendar? Will that excuse hold water? I was busy. I didn't have time. And I can make giving investments. I can give my resources. I can give my home. I can allow people in to share and talk and have gospel conversations. I can give my things. I can give my money. Folks, put a star next to two there that you struggle with. I hope you wrote those down. Praying investments, effort investments, children investments, or family investments, or even we could say other investments, time investments, giving investments. This is where we make application. This isn't just a lecture to say, oh, that was very interesting. I learned a lot. This is something when we walk out those doors now, we are another minute, hour, day closer to the coming of Christ, and now it's time to start making these investments. As individuals, as a church, as a family, however we can do it. Listen to this from J.C. Ryle. It should motivate you. Our title in heaven is all of grace. Okay, in other words, our, 
our title, our, our ability to even enter the kingdom is all of grace. It's all God's work. Amen to that? But our rewards, our degree of glory, Ryle puts it, is proportionate to our works. This is why in, in Peter it says, there are some that are going to receive an abundant entrance. There's going to be some that are ruling over ten cities. There's going to be some that are ruling over five cities. And there's going to be some that have their mina taken away. What do you envision for yourself on that, that day? It's real easy to be misled, to be deceived about your own gospel investments, thinking you're doing more when you're doing nothing. Faithful service here results in opportunities for faithful service in the kingdom. Why in the world would God position someone in his kingdom to be a ruler when that person did nothing here, right? Think about that. Oh, well, you know, you wasted all your time. You, you didn't do many gospel events. You know, you never talked to anybody about Christ. Your priorities were other places. But come here and rule over 10 cities in the kingdom of heaven. No, that's not going to happen. And that gets us to the third person. Uh, and let's, let's make this statement about investments too. It's one final thing before I turn the paper in my notes. There are no passive investments, there are no passive investments. This takes work, effort, action, diligence. Uh, it takes, uh, it's, um, it's got to be a determined decision. It's got to be intentional, right? It, it's not this passive, well, I'll just, I'll just live my life in a certain way and it will just have this profound impact. No, there are no passive investments, okay? The third servant then is discussed, and please, be, please bear with me as we go through this. There is some controversy amongst Bible leaders as to whom this represents. This is the guy who comes and says, I hid it, right? The others worked and invested. This guy didn't. So some believe this is a believer who saved but was not doing any work for Christ and the gospel. Some believe it is an unbeliever who simply had a profession of Christianity and will be sent to hell. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I think, and uh, then, we'll, then we'll wrap this all up, make some final applications. Look at verse 20. Let's see what he does. He says to the Lord, when the nobleman returns, first of all, it says, another came and says, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. First of all, this is stupid and careless. In the parable of the talents, remember what he did with the talent? He buried it. That would be more secure than putting it in a handkerchief, so he's careless. But this word handkerchief is a great word. It is the term for a bandana that would be used during work like, and put on the back of the neck, like you see people maybe working in the fields, to keep the sun from bearing down on the back of the neck. And then it was used after that to take off, after the work was done, and wipe one's sweat from one's face. Now, if he's hiding the mina in the handkerchief that was to be worn during work, what does it tell you? He didn't need the handkerchief for work. He's not doing any gospel work. He's not doing any investing. I think that's troubling and fantastic at the same time. There are so many Christians that are keeping the gospel in their napkins that aren't doing any investing work. They don't, they don't need the handkerchief because they're not doing any gospel work. Folks, look around. There are opportunities for the gospel. There are things to do. There are people to love. Don't be like this third servant who hides it. He's lazy and pathetic. Why does he do this? Why does he hide it? Is it because, number one, he's afraid? Is he intimidated by others? Is he worried? Number two, is he apathetic? Is he indifferent? Does he not really care? Or is he arrogant? Is he too good for everyone else and lives in isolation? Doesn't believe the gospel is for everybody. 
We can fall into those same things. We don't make gospel investments because we're afraid. Or because we really don't care about people. Or because we're just too arrogant. We think we're the spiritual ones and no one else deserves it. What could be any of those problems? He, when the Lord came, blamed the Lord for this. Said, Lord, I was afraid of you. It's in the passage here, right? Verse 21. You are a severe or an austere person. You are a hard man. Tells us he really didn't know the nobleman, doesn't it? Because in the passage, he's very generous, giving, kind. Well, even so, wouldn't the fear motivate him? (laughs) If he was afraid of this guy coming back? Well, what is taken, what he has, the nobleman takes from him and gives to the ten Mina servant who earned the ten, and others around object. Hey, he already has ten, but the Lord says to him in verse number 26, the one who was faithful is going to get even more, while the one who did nothing gets nothing. Now, is this a person who really never knew Christ, or is this a person who knew Christ and was lazy? Some describe him as a lost and false professor. After all, in the passage, he is actually called by the nobleman wicked. He has, a, he has no concept of God. He doesn't do any gospel ministry. But he is not linked in with the, quote, citizens who hated the man and didn't want him to, to rebel. Now, in the parable of the talents, the third servant is taken out to outer darkness. That's not true of this servant. It just says it is taken from him and given to somebody else. And then in verse 27, the enemies are slaughtered. I believe that this is a nominal believer who has done nothing for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 actually tells us about the judgment seat of Christ, that all of us will receive what he has done, whether it was good or evil, whether it was profitable or worthless. And in 1 Corinthians 3.10, and I hang my hat on this passage, it says that all of us are building on a foundation. And it says, in that day, says in that day and i think it's talking about the when the king returns in that day that work will be revealed and there will be this process of fire and the fire will burn up worthless acts and the fire will refine those gospel investments so that the person who has made those gospel investments will be rewarded but first corinthians 3 10 says the person who has his works uh, burned up will suffer loss yet he himself will be saved I think, and it's quite possible that this still could be a lost person. There's, there's, that's up for debate. But let me make this application. There will be believers on that day when Christ returns who will suffer loss. There's no question about that in the Bible. There will be believers on that day when the king returns who will have major regrets because they didn't do anything for him. They never needed a handkerchief. They never did any gospel investments. They will suffer loss, not reward. What will be your fate? There are enemies at the very end of the passage who are slaughtered. Revelation 14, 9, 11 tells us this too. This should rightly horrify us. The fierce wrath of God slaughtering those who rejected him. And in the end, all the enemies of Christ get exactly what they want. Separation from the king. They didn't want him. They're going to get exactly what they want. Let me finish with this. In this parable of the pause, I think there's these three thoughts. There are people who are investors who will get rewards. Okay, understand, you need to figure out where you are. 
I'm trying to figure out where I am. You need to figure out where you are. There are, there are gospel investors who will get rewards. Then there are the indifferent who will get shame. And then there are the insolent who will receive death. I mean, this is not just a, a trivial matter. What you're doing now matters. I would ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you rightly discern which group you're in. Are you investing? Are you indifferent? Or are you, in fact, insolent? You are actually an enemy of Christ. The final arbiter of this judgment will not be fooled. He will rightly acknowledge our labors. Remember, remember Paul tells us he will not forget your labor of love and what you've done. God keeps accurate accounts. He will rightly rebuke our lack of investments. There will be no excuse that will hold water. I was busy, the calendar, the priorities, the whatever. I was fearful. I didn't have a gift. No, there, he will, there will be no response. There will be, there will be like when Archelaus went to Caesar, there are pages in Josephus' books where argumentations are made on both sides as to why which one should be the king. There are going to be no counter-arguments on the day that Christ returns. It is Christ making the judgment, and there's no but, please, uh, mm, nope. The, the arbiter is final, and he is accurate. That should motivate all of us. He will then punish severely the rebels. The categories will be revealed, the groups will be un, unveiled, and there will be no arguing. And yet 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has in store for those of us who love him. What gospel investments are you making? Shall we pray? Father, this has been a, a convicting lesson from your word. Oh, how desperately I needed this. And I pray that each one of us would discern at this moment where we are. Even if we're making investments, God, can we do more? Can we serve more? Can we reach more? Can we care more, pray more, give more, share more, talk more, love more? And what can we do, God? You are a kind and loving, noble king. You died for me, for us. We desire our lives to be a reflection and a sacrifice for you. Father, if there is one in here who is just kind of indifferent, like this servant hiding, hiding the mina in the cloth, God, convict them. We, they are needed in the kingdom. May they work, lest that day be shame for them. Or even worse yet, if the scholars are correct, and it proves the lack of even knowing Christ, how even more traumatic that would be. And anyone in here, Father, who is not rightly related to this king, may they trust him today and find him to be this kind and loving Christ. How we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.